The Fanny Mechanic Show with Dr. Tash, where we dive in, go deep, and open up about women's health. Hello and welcome everyone to this week's episode of The Fanny Mechanic Show. I am your host, Dr. Natasha Andriatis, aka Dr. Tash, and this episode is proudly brought to you by City Fertility, Global Leaders in Fertility and IVF. This week, we dive into the topic of insulin resistance. We go deep with Perth-based general practitioner, Dr. Ashwini Ghana Baskaran. Ashwini opens up about her approach to managing this very common condition. I ask Ashwini, what exactly is insulin resistance? How common is it? Is it more common in women or men? How do you test for it? Who is at risk of it? What are symptoms of high blood glucose levels? And how about low blood glucose levels? What are symptoms of that? What are the complications of insulin resistance? How can insulin resistance be reversed? What is the role of diet, lifestyle, medications and supplements? Are there any particular diets that are better than others for managing it? And what are some good books or websites on the topic of insulin resistance? How about self-monitoring? Should we all own a home blood glucose monitor, even if we don't have insulin resistance or pre-diabetes diabetes as the ultimate prophylaxis against developing diabetes? Continuous glucose monitoring devices. Does she recommend them? A little bit about Ashwini. She is happily married and has two beautiful children. She enjoys nature walks, yoga, and has recently started learning golf with the aim of playing in a tournament in the future. She loves cooking for her family and is eagerly waiting for her new puppy arriving in January to join her family. She's an avid reader and loves listening to podcasts and audiobooks in her free time. Her professional goal is to empower her patients to get to the root cause and heal and be in the best health possible. She also feels everyone deserves to experience good health care. I second that one. Her personal goal is to travel more when the borders permit with her family and spend as much time as possible being in nature and collecting precious family memories together. I hope you enjoy our chat. Dr. Ashwini Ghana Baskaran. Is that how I say your name? Yes, correct. And no. I, can I just call you Tash? Yeah, of course you I can. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> oh, can I call you Ash? Yes, just okay, call me Ash. Ash. Yeah. Is that what people usually call you? Yeah, that's uh, what they call me. And what's your background originally, Ashwini, with Ghana Baskaran? Where's that name from? Now, for us, I'm South Indian. So what happens is we don't have a surname. The Ghana Baskaran is actually my dad's first name. Oh. So usually we are like daughter of, son of sort of thing. So that's why, you know, Ashwini is my name. Ghana Baskaran is my dad's first name. So yeah, there you that's go. how it is. Yeah, we don't have surnames. It's daughter of or son of sort of concept. Now, today's topic uh, was uh, was something that you put, I think, first on your list when I asked you a series of questions of, about what you wanted to talk about. And I know that uh, Southeast Asians, i.e. Indians, are more likely to have insulin resistance. Um, yes, that's true. Can you explain to our listeners exactly what is insulin resistance, Ash? Now, insulin is a naturally produced hormone that allows the transfer of glucose into our cells of our body, particularly the liver and muscle. So that's how we use energy and we utilize the energy for day-to-day life. It's produced in the pancreas and allows us to use the carbohydrates which are then broken down into glucose. It goes into our blood and then moves around our body and, you know, for our energy production. So insulin resistance is when our body stops responding to the signal and your muscle and your livers resist the action. So there's greater amount of um, glucose in your bloodstream and that leads to multiple chronic problems. So it's one of an early symptoms before you develop a glucose abnormality or diabetic and things like that. So it may be happening years and years before you know any of that is coming into action. Mm. So how common is it? Now, I couldn't get an exact Australian um, statistic, but I got one that's saying at least around 30% of the US adult population 
may be affected by, by it. And again, it's definitely higher in certain risk group, <clears throat> can be Asians, um, can be um, African groups, Latin Americans. So there are certain groups of people who tend to have um, this predisposition that's strongly compared to the others. And is it more common in women or men? Now, surprisingly, it says it's more com common in men because it said that estrogen actually has a protective mechanism. Mm. Again, I think it's via the um, pro-inflammatory pathways and stuff like that. Though in my practice, because I see a predominant women group of patients, a lot of my own patients are women who present with these symptoms. Mm. Particularly, mm. I find the uh, perimenopausal women and the menopausal women. Yeah, and also the well. very younger ones with the PCOS and, mm. you know, the polycystic group of patients. So, yeah, I get that early group and also the perimenopause group of them. Now, how do you actually test for it? So, uh, you know, there's the full glucose tolerance test, there's fasting insulin, there's the HOMA test, the HbA1c, the fasting glucose, then you've got your continuous glucose monitoring, which we'll talk about a bit later. But what tests do you actually order on your patients when you're looking for insulin resistance? Okay, basically the best one will be to get a fasting insulin level. It's a blood test. But very often, it's not covered by Medicare if you don't have the correct risk factors. And so in fasting insulin, you, you get a level. And basically, if it's anything between three to eight, it's a good level. Above eight, if there is insulin resistance developing. And more than 12, yeah, definite. But there are other ways to do it. The first step, right, is actually to look at your waist ratio over your height. So if you can just get your waist and height measured, anything more than 0.5 is going to show you have risk of insulin resistance. That's the way to look at it. Triglyceride over HDL ratio is another important you know, predictor. So anything more than three is a risk. Fasting insulin is definitely the best way. And you also can do the HOMA, like you said. That is a homeostatic model assessment of insulin resistance where it reveals the dynamic before the baseline blood sugar and the hormone insulin. So this, you can actually get online calculators where your glucose times your insulin level divided by 22.5, you get a level there. So less than one says you're insulin sensitive and that's optimal. More than 1.9 is early insulin resistance and above 2.9 is severe insulin resistance. So these are what's available for insulin as such. But you're right, people also need to look at fasting blood glucose levels. And if that's high, your doctor can order then a glucose tolerance test where you look at the impact levels if there are and the HbA1c. But like I said, a lot of times your fasting glucose, HbA1c may all be normal, but your fasting insulin level may be the high one. So it's important to get the fasting insulin level checked if there are risk factors. And I tend to do it for patients who have high BMI, problem losing weight. They can have some acanthosis, nigricans around, you know, the neck and armpit and stuff. So those are the patients I tend to order fasting insulin or when they have risk of polycystic. Yeah, all those group of patients, I tend to straight order fasting insulin and look at the levels. Now, in terms of fasting and the, and the definition of fasting, can you talk more on that? What For, is it? Is, to, it, is get, it eight to ten hours of, eight of to no 10 food? Hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I tell them, eight mm. to ten hours. Okay. So from 10 p.m. at night and then come in in the morning about 8 a.m. and get your bloods done. So in terms of risk, um, when you assess people's risk, you obviously mentioned that, you know, a lot of it's got to do with their demographics, whether they're female, male, uh, and you also talked about a bit about uh, examination, so when you examine someone. Uh, are there any people that kind of catch you by surprise where, you know, they don't really have any risk factors but they are insulin resistant? Does that happen often? Um. Very rarely, but it does happen in people who are, you know, slimmer body line. They don't really fit your metabolic syndrome profile. But most of my patients who present are your typical, you know, they have a high BMI, inactive lifestyle, a high carbohydrate diet, 
um, they may have um, metabolic syndrome happening in the family, diabetic risk, alcohol, I mean, a non-alcoholic fatty liver. There may be also a polycystic ovarian syndrome there, history of smoking, of course, ethnicity, age, the higher the age, the higher the risk. And if they are on certain medications or they have sleep disorders, all this, I feel they are, tend to have risk factors. So they're not just high BMI, but if they have all these other uh, predisposing factors, they are also presenting with uh, insulin resistance. You mentioned non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is becoming yes. a lot more common now than before. What abnormalities do you see on a liver function panel when someone has a non-fatty or non-alcoholic fatty liver? Usually you'll have your elevated GGT and the ALT. So that's when it makes me think, okay, your liver is working harder. Let's explore whether is it, you know, your cholesterol, is it your lifestyle, is it your stress? Is it intake of medications or alcohol? So usually it's these two parameters that I look for, GGT and the ALT. And do you reflexly then order a liver ultrasound when you see that? I tend to. When I see there's a metabolic syndrome, I straight away do just to look at it just for a screening and see what other abnormalities can be there. So I definitely tend to order them appropriately when I see an elevated liver function. And when you address the insulin resistance, with lifestyle, medication, supplements, whatever you choose to do, do you ever do follow-up ultrasound of the liver to see if things have resolved? And, and, and does you know, a non-alcoholic fatty liver disease regress? Does it go away? Yes, definitely. So usually I monitor them with their liver function test, which is the blood test more regularly. And there are certain patients that I choose to check again, usually just to see if they're severe fatty liver showing on the initial ultrasound six to 12 months later. But most, most of them, when they bring it on, when I look at all the other parameters, you know, the blood pressure is good, the fasting glucose is good, the insulin level, their lipid profile, the liver function is all good, then I don't tend to keep following up and checking the ultrasound again. And what are some of the symptoms of high blood glucose levels? Now, high blood glucose, is when your levels are definitely fasting above seven and you're non-fasting above 11. So in that situation, you can get increased thirst, frequent urination, fatigue is a big one, nausea and vomiting, shortness of breath, tummy pains, they have dry mouth, risk of infections, you know, they may just feel lethargic and tired. So those are the few things I see with um, hyperglycemia, which is the high blood glucose levels. And how about a low blood glucose levels? What, what happens there? What are the symptoms there? Yeah, low again is your body trying to get help. So you tend to be a bit more shaky, sweaty. You will feel weak. You know, you feel nausea. There's dizziness. There may be confusion and stuff. So this is a, actually a medical emergency for us. So if anything below 3.9, you need to, it needs to be attended to. Anything below a level of three millimole per liter is already an emergency and we need to quickly get your sugar level up appropriately. You know when you sometimes order a full glucose tolerance test, uh, I often find that the two-hour level uh, can be low, uh, lower than the um, than their range. What, how do you interpret that as a GP? Um, usually then I tell them whether it's a impact fasting or impact tolerance test. So usually I tell them, this is what's happening. Your These two levels are good, but your body is not utilizing or is utilizing sugar better at a later level. But I still take it that, okay, this is already a risk. So even when the one hour is up, I already take it as a risk and we work on lifestyle changes from then itself. So what are the complications of insulin resistance, Ash? Now, the first one is, of course, getting type 2 diabetic, which then leads to a lot more other chronic problem. Then you can get your history of any sort of cardiovascular disease, you know, your heart attacks and stuff come there. You can get kidney problems. You can get eye problems, again, because it's related to the high sugar. There are also recent studies where Alzheimer patients have also been presenting with high insulin resistance, you know, again, because probably ineffective usage of glucose and also Certain studies have shown there's also risk of certain cancers because insulin is a cell growth stimulator. 
which you know predisposes you to all these risk factors. So increases the risk of all types of cancer or specific cancers? Specific cancers, yeah. Which ones in, in any that come to mind? Um, I think breast, pancreas is one, colon is one. So these are the few things that are commonly seen. Mm. And how many years does it take to progress from insulin resistance to type 2 diabetes? Is there any evidence now, or research on that? Defer. Again, it can take years to years. There's no specific timeline, I would say. It just depends on every individual and how bad their metabolic syndrome is and the risk factors, you know, the genetic, the food, the lifestyle. So it can be quick or it can take years and years before progression happens. Now, how can we reverse insulin resistance? How can we prevent it from becoming type 2 diabetes? How can we get rid of it completely? How do you advise your patients on on diet, lifestyle, medications, supplements? Now, this is the fun part. This is why I like insulin resistance. Because it's, <laughs> it's totally you can reversible. Do. <laughs> it's totally reversible. Oh, awesome. Okay. So many patients Let's do it. talk about it. <laughs> yeah. So the first one is low-carb diet. That's been having a lot of, you know, media attention recently. So it's an easy concept. When you're not eating sugar then you're, or you're not eating carbohydrates, there's less insulin needed to process them and move it into your cell. So your insulin gets to relax. And so lesser is produced and you can, it actually reverses the effect that happens. So that's a very good one, the low carb um, diet. The second one is intermittent fasting. Again, it's the same concept. The lesser you take in, the more time, the less stress on the insulin and pancreas. So those, this low-carb with intermittent fasting are very good options I see. And also with some physical activity, because anything like a hit sort of high-intensity interval training, things like that tend to really um, work well for insulin resistance. Because what happens is the more you move, the more glucose your muscle takes out of the blood, and then that helps lower your blood sugar levels and again you know lesser need for insulin secretion lesser burden on the pancreas so any sort of movement high a hit exercises resistant training cardio so that all of this can improve the glucose utilization and improve your insulin sensitivity so these are the best that i have seen that works for patients and of course if they've tried all of this and then Medication, we do use, I tend to use it for patients with polycystic who want to conceive and stuff. Metformin comes as our first option because what metformin does is it reduces the glucose production in the liver. And, you know, again, there's less need for the insulin to then move around the glucose. And it also improves the insulin sensitivity. So that's a good one. But I tend to also encourage patients to work on um, herbs and nutraceuticals that have evidence base. Again, all of this, please check with your own doctor. It may not suit everyone. So a few herbs that are said to work are fenugreek seeds. So they tend to increase your insulin sensitivity. Turmeric is another good one, again, because of its antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties. Ginger is also said to have um, components that help increase insulin sensitivity. And garlic is another one. And another good herb is cinnamon. Cinnamon, actually, there's a lot of studies I've found that it's, it's able to reduce the blood sugar and increase the insulin sensitivity, but again, appropriately used. Green tea is a good one. Drinking a lot of green tea has a powerful antioxidant called the EGCG, which is the ethylgalactin-gallate. And that improves the insulin sensitivity. Apple cider vinegar is also a good one where it says it, it increases the insulin sensitivity by about 34% in a, in a patient who has taken a high-carb meal. And there's a few others also, which is um, we can use things like B-complex because it helps with the metabolism of carbohydrate. So then your glucose metabolism improves. Magnesium is a good one to improve insulin signaling and blood sugar regulation. All your antioxidants, your A, C, and E, they help by reducing the oxidation and usage of, you know, the insulin sensitivity increases. 
Your vitamin D is the major one that addresses deficiencies and utilizes positive blood sugar. It affects your moods and immune. Coenzyme Q10 has also certain um, studies that say it helps. And also your essential fatty acids helps with energy and glucose regulation and cholesterol lowering properties. So these are a few of the herbs and nutraceuticals I find really helps patients. And of course, I also tell them to get, you know, get on top of their stress, stress reduction, relaxation, sleep quality, all of it plays a role in bringing down your insulin resistance and keeping it at a good level. Yeah, sleep is a huge one, isn't it? Sleep, snoring, yeah. not ignoring those. Oh, um, yeah, correct. Yeah, and I'm glad you gave us a nice little list there. How about oats, whole oats, rolled oats? I think there are studies around. Yeah, more for cholesterol, mm. more for your cholesterol. But, of course, anything that brings down and brings down your um, using processed food, it's going to reduce your processed food and that will help overall anyway. Can you talk more on metformin, how you start that and what recommendations you give around escalating the dose? Okay, usually my starting dose is 500 milligram, which is um, the standard dose available. And I start it twice a day for the first two to three days. And then I tell the patients to move it to three times a day. And it has to be taken with their meal because it helps with reducing the um, glucose production in the liver and also improving the insulin sensitivity. The only problem is some patients complain of cramps and tummy discomfort that come with it. But usually I find it's well tolerated. Very few have had issues with it. But some patients prefer the um, prolonged released tablets because and that just eases things. You know, they take once a day and that helps it. So usually I start at 500 milligram twice a day and then I move it to 500 milligram three times a day. But if they prefer a once a day option, then I tend to give them the 1000 milligram XR, which is the extended release. And most of them tolerate it quite well. So they usually take that one at dinner time? When do you recommend the Yeah, they take release? it in the evening. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what, if, if generally speaking, most people tolerate the extended release more, why wouldn't you make that your first option? Because when I first want to try it, I want to see how their body works for it. Mm. So I give them the option and see. But I tend to understand how people are these days. Just taking once a day is also a best, it's an easier option for them. So I tend to look at the patient and see what, what's their options, what do they like to do. But truthfully, 90% 90 90 of my patients are on the XR. Mm. Very few are actually on the two or three times dosing. And vitamin B12 deficiency, I've read, is uh, something that metformin can cause. Do you recommend that people take a B12 supplement, especially if they are deplete with metformin? Definitely. And I also tell them about all the food options that's available that can top up your B12, mm. from your eggs to your greens to your fish and meat and all of that. But, yeah, when they are deficient, I always tend to check a B12 for all my patients on metformin at least once yearly. And what levels do you like to see? Uh, I, I've read, again, in, information about it needing to be in the higher end of normal rather than the lower end. Do you agree with that? And is a little bit of I, B12 over the upper limit a big thing, a bad thing necessarily? I tend to like to not have it too much. I know there's a lot of people who think, oh, that's okay, fine. But I tend to always encourage it to keep it at the upper end, but not over the limit. And if it's over the limit, because we need to investigate and see why it's happening. So, you know, as, as long as they feel good, it's on the upper end of the norm and they're doing well. So I tend to use it patient to patient, very you know, individualized sort of a assessment. Some days they are like happy to be at the mid range and they're comfortable, they're well, and I, I let it be. Or some, I feel they need a bit of a higher range, then yeah, I encourage them to take supplements and stuff. And you mentioned earlier the low-carb diet and intermittent fasting. Mm -hmm. Again, when you're counselling your patients around these dietary options, um, how, do, how do you go about explaining how is, how is one better than another? I mean, do most people opt for the low-carb option first rather than the intermittent fasting? Are there any particular... Uh, diets where people are more likely to adhere to? 
because intermittent fasting sounds like it can be tricky, although I, in my practice I find quite a lot of patients do it and like it. But what's your experience mm. there, Ash? Tricia, I've got two groups. One, come to me because they're on a low-carb and intermittent fasting. So they're already on a diet that's comfortable to them. They want me to just monitor their parameters, look at their blood levels and stuff. So some of them come already on it and they're happy to be on it. But if I see someone who's new and presenting with metabolic syndrome, they're having weight issues, the fasting insulin level is up. So I always give them the option and I educate them how carbohydrate affects weight and stuff like that. So I always give them the option of going low carb. People actually can get a lot of books around this now. So people are well educated and they know the benefits about it. So they, I find that's a very easy option. Or first I tell them, you know what, let's just remove all processed food. Remove your bread, your pasta, your rice, your sugars, your chips, your bis biscuits and all of that. And then we tend to look at nutritional values, trying to look at what are nutritional food, what is protein and what is a good carb, what are the fruits that, you know, doesn't increase your sugar too much. So I tend to then educate them around this. And once they're comfortable with this, and then I bring the concept of intermittent fasting into it. And I'll say, okay, is it okay if we just have a black coffee in the morning and you start your first meal at noon? So some patients are, they're like, oh, I'm already doing that anyway. So some patients tend to like it. Some like the three meal. Again, that's fine as long as they are not having the processed food and the wrong food, not having your bagel and stuff for breakfast and not having a high carbohydrate meal, I think that's fine. Because I've also had patients reverse insulin resistance without fasting, just changing the diet. And again, fasting can be tricky if people are on medication. So of course, it has to be carefully done and may or may not suit everyone. So again, it's about an individual approach, their lifestyle, the sort of job they are doing and what works for them. You mentioned earlier books on a low-carb diet and intermittent fasting. Are there any particular books you like to recommend? I find these two are the best. I like anything by Dr. Jason Fung. His books are really good. It gives a bit of a scientific knowledge, but I think generally everyone can follow it. Also, there are a lot of videos around the concept of low-carb and fasting from him, which I found was the best for patients to follow and, and get a good scientific explanation. How do you spell the his last name? F-U-N-G. Ah, Fung. Okay. You say Fung, Fung. Okay. F-U-N-G. Oh, sorry. That's all right. No. Yeah. So, okay. F-U-N-G. Thank you. And, uh, and the Diet Doctor website. That's a fantastic mm. tool for recipes, for education. They've got a lot of videos. I think it's, it's, there's a sub subscription fee, but it's not too much. And I think just six months having, looking at their videos and understanding it, patients are able to actually benefit a lot from those two. Um, videos and websites. How about Michael Morsley's books? Again, some patients like it, but bringing down your calorie to very low, it's also difficult for some patients to do. So if they come with me, okay, and I like this concept and I want to do this, I totally agree with them. The five, two works for some people, not for all. But as long as they understand the whole thing around this, um, it's about the quality of food you're eating, it's about not taking processed food, then I think it, it's just a different approach. Some don't like that approach, some like it. So I tend to just work with what patients are comfortable with um, as long as we're getting good results and they're happy doing what they're doing. And there's two other books I'll also say. One is The Complete Guide to Fasting. That gives you a real good explanation about the scientific reasons behind fasting. And what the fat and what the fast. These are two other books I found. <laughs> also gives you a good explanation. What the around, fat yeah. and what the fast. The I like fast, it. Yeah. The CSIRO has a few books out. What do you think of their yeah. books? Um, again, yeah, I think their books are pretty good too. There's a lot of recipes and education and all around that. So, you know, I tell them you don't have to spend all the money. You don't have to do There's a lot of actually free resources. Mm. on YouTube and internet. So if they can just use that and they want more, get these books to read. But yeah, and then, you know, one or two, once they have got the concept right, then I, I feel they can't, they don't really uh, need anything more. But of course, people forget six months later, they forget they need to do all of this. And then we need to just re-explore and say, okay, your fasting has gone up again, your insulin levels, let's go back to the diet. 
Yeah, I mean, there's no lack of information out there, is there? There are so many books on this topic. Yeah. yeah. Now, monitoring. I wanted to ask you about self-monitoring. There's obviously the uh, home glucose monitor uh, mm-hmm. where you have the little lancet, you prick yourself a couple of times a day to check your, your um, glucose levels, and then there's the continuous glucose monitoring. Can you explain to our listeners what these devices are and how they differ now, this self-monitoring where we prick ourselves, the one you're telling is, it's a concept we use it for usually our pre-diabetic and diabetic patients because we need to know the levels, we need to do insulin monitoring. But I tend to say those who have insulin resistance and not ha- don't, have not progressed to diabetic level, I tend to say, you know what, let's not do that. What we need is good. So six monthly, I tend to look at their waist circumference, blood pressure, the lipid profile, fasting sugar, fasting insulin. I think this gives me a good um, check for them, those who are not at the pre-diabetic or the diabetic range. But if, of course, you're diabetic, this is a good way. This was a traditional way we were using. But currently, the continuous glucose monitoring is fantastic if they can afford it. It's a bit expensive. I think it's about $100 a month to get the um, attachment piece. Mm. So that I find it really good, even for patients who are not diabetic. It just gives you an education of what you ate and where the sugar, you know, increased. And for my diabetic patients, there was one patient who she was, she said she was on a clean diet. She was eating low carb, but HbA1c was 11. Like Mm. we couldn't really figure it out what's happening. But this allowed her to really see where her mistake was, where she wasn't putting the food into her diary. So, and then we were able to really clean her diet better and bring it down to seven. So I think continuous glucose monitoring is good for data collection for anyone who just wants to know how food affects their sugar levels. And definitely it's advisable for all our diabetic patients to get one. If, um, I mean, again, a cost is allowing to actually understand how your foot is influencing your glucose level throughout the day. Yeah, I've actually got one of those and I want to start using it. I'm, I'm curious about how I eat and what it's doing to my, my glucose levels. Yeah. Because um, I, I would think it would be maybe the smarter way of uh, managing things if you're told you're ins- insulin resistant because then you can really see what foods are setting you off. Or even, you know, out of curiosity, um, if you've had a bad night's sleep and you wake up in the morning and you're not feeling great, is that bad night's sleep reflected in the glucose monitoring? And sometimes when people see that, they go, well, maybe I need to address my sleep. Maybe I need to go for that sleep study or or whatever. So um, Yeah, exactly. I totally mm. agree with that. I think we all should get have it. You know, just it really gives us a good data and allows us to work on our diet and lifestyle better. So do you think, Ash, in my private practice, because obviously I see a lot of PCOS patients, if they have uh, elevated fasting insulin levels and um, I commence them on metformin because they've got not got regular menstrual cycles, should I be recommending continuous glucose monitoring for these women if they can afford it? Is that a bad thing I, to do? Or good yeah, thing? I think so, if they can afford it because it just gives them a data collection and they see it, you know, and then... They're accountable. Oh, I ate this and this went up. So it just, and you don't need it for a long time. Even if they use it for a month, it just mm. gives them that visual education about what's happening. Mm. And then they, they'll start being more mindful. And they can also share that data with their doctor. Because I can see yes. that there's a really cool app on your phone that you can, uh, I think, connect to the device. Is that connect correct? To. Yeah. Yes, that's correct. And sometimes they print and bring us all this level and, you know, they're proud. And they say, oh, look at it. I had a perfect level this time. I had mm-hmm. this level at this point. So I think it really helps with patient motivation. Mm. Especially around the exercise, things would be interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah. You know, to see what happens after, like if you went after on a 10, 10 kilometer run, what would happen to your blood glucose levels? I suppose depleted quite a bit, depending on uh, how fast you run, maybe, and for how long. Um, exactly. I was having a discussion with a friend about the ketogenic diet and uh, he asked me to ask you, are people mm-hmm. who are on a ketogenic diet more likely to develop insulin resistance? That is particularly people who are on a non-cyclic ketogenic diet. I think there was some studies around that which says it's like a rebound 
insulin resistance. Mm. So, yeah, I think that just needs to be explored a bit more and understand what's happening behind that. So pretty much these people shouldn't be just monitoring their ketones, but perhaps their blood glucose levels with a continuous glucose monitoring device. What do you think? I think that's right because one of my patients, again, yeah, we had this and we realized his vitamin C had was elevating his glucose levels. So he was on a ketogenic diet, but the insulin levels were up. And then we were finding out, okay, what's happening? And then we found out, oh, his, the vitamin C he was taking actually had some sort of um, um, sugar in it that was increasing his levels. Oh, that's so interesting, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So I think it just gives you a way to look at things a bit deeper and explore a bit deeper. Yeah, it's so important to be, to look on the the labels for everything that you put into your mouth, not just food, but but supplements, you know, and and looking at the incipients that are added yeah. to a lot of things that can really set people off. Um, so I, I'd say everyone should be looking at the minutiae of their labels. True, that's correct, and that's when I feel the glucose monitoring comes into action. It really helps understand, oh, I thought this was a healthy option and now my sugar is showing up and then they tend to look at deeper into it. And then, yeah, that's when they, but I think the one, what you're talking about, adaptive insulin resistance. So it's been associated with, yeah. And again, there's some hypothesis around it, but like I said, it's, mm. we can hypothesize that we stop eating sugar, it should fall. But yeah, I think there's a lot more physiological changes that happens with it that we need to um, understand a bit clearer and better. So the ketogenic diet was pretty hot there. It was pretty popular. Uh, is it still popular? It's still popular in certain groups of patients. I think you can't use it for long term and then, you know, during festive seasons and all, they tend to fall off a bit. But some patients swear by it. They like eating the ketogenic diet. They feel really good their mental alertness improves, they like to see a good level. So, you know, again, the long-term effect of ketogenic diet hasn't been actually properly studied. So as long as yearly, I tell them, let's get your kidney function, liver, all your levels checked. Let's see how you're doing. As long as you're feeling good on it, I think it's fine. But I tend to encourage a bit of a low-carb diet. I feel that's a better option. And I like a bit of fiber and greens in their diet. So my go-to is always a low-carb, moderate protein, healthy fat with a good amount of fiber and adequate hydration. I feel that's like a formula that works for most. And do you have all of your patients see a, a dietitian in your practice or do you as a GP spend most of your time educating them about food? Are you one of those special GPs? <laughs> <laughs> I both. Some patients, I feel, you know what, I need to send this patient to someone else to educate a bit more. Some of them who come well-versed with the information, they've done all the studying, they understand the concept behind it. Yeah, I kind of just work with them on my own. But there are some where totally it's a new concept and they feel overwhelmed by it. Getting a dietitian, I feel, really helps this sort of patients because they understand the portion, they understand how to count nutrition, how to look at, they understand the whole picture. And that's when I feel, yeah, dietitians come in hand. And is there anything else you wanted to talk about in regards to insulin resistance, Ash, before I ask you some personal questions? <laughs> I think we've covered mostly everything. I think the levels and non-medication um, has been covered. Yeah, I think that's pretty good. Do you think there's anything else we have missed out that may help patients? Um, no, I think that was a nice synopsis, actually. It's, it certainly made me want to go away and use the continuous blood glucose monitor. Um, in, yeah. in regards to that list that you gave about the supplements, um, yeah, I recommend those supplements, the magnesium, the B groups, especially. I think it's B, is it B3? Um, All the yeah, B, nicotinamide. I think, tend to have, yeah, yeah. All of them have a different, different role in the metabolism and stuff like that. So, you know, of course, if more specific ones are needed, then we look at it specifically. But a good um, B-complex is always advised, I guess, to work on all the pathways that they may be deficient from. Yeah, and the fenugreek seeds, where are they from originally? What country? I'm not sure. I mean, I'm from an Indian origin, so we use it a lot in our cooking. All oh, right. But really, I'm not sure where they actually come from. 
So they're actually in all your curries, your fish curry, your, all our seafood, we use it a lot. Mm. We even use it for yeah, dal and stuff. And you can get it as, as a supplement as well, can't you? Yeah, you can. Yeah. You can. Yeah. So Ash, which people have been your biggest inspirations in your life? Well, I think inspirations have been my parents who were very hardworking people and gave us, you know, taught us that education was important, social service was important, um, spirituality was important. So they really formed who I am in my early years. My husband has been a great inspiration to me. He's always supporting me to do better, to, you know, progress, um, study more, learn more, whatever. He's been a great support. And out of there, I like, um, celebrity-wise, I like Oprah Winfrey a lot. She's yeah. been a great inspiration yeah, to me. Same here, I don't same know here. why, because, you know, I grew up, I'm a, I mean, in the 90s, I used to watch Oprah Winfrey with my mom yeah. every afternoon. So <laughs> everything about her excites me, whatever she teaches, she tells. Dr. Mark Hyman is another one of my favorite. Mm. The thing is, I like his um, pharmacy podcast. I like how he says food is medicine. Mm. And I think that has really resonated with me. And that's when I always try to educate my patients and see, you know what? We're all here to help and lead a better, clean, healthier life. Let's go back to the basics. Let's eat clean, keep our environmental clean, drink quality water, keep our relationships good. So I like that whole concept that he works on. So he's been a great inspiration to me. Another one is Dr. Shafali that I really enjoyed her parenting concept. Um, she's, she always talks about conscious parenting and things like that. So I found her a great inspiration too. Hmm. Dr. Shafali, I've not heard of her. Yeah. Is she, where she's is she really from? big with, she's from US. I think she's um, from hmm. US. She's a psychologist. She works on about how, you know, parenting isn't about us and it's about allowing the child to grow and not putting our ideas into them mm. and understanding the child's conscious being. And, yeah, so that whole concept was new and I loved how she approaches parenting. And what, what's the – are you reading a book at the moment? Any books at the moment that you're reading? Uh, currently, actually, I've not been reading anything. I've, I've been looking at a bit of a bit of spiritual books lately, but, yeah, but the, you asked me my favourite books. One is Mindset by Dr. Carol Dweck. I found that really good. Dr. Shafali has the Conscious Parent book. I think all parents should read it. That's a fantastic book. All the books by Dr. Brene Brown, I love it, mm. especially Daring, Daring Greatly. I think her books are great. Power of the Subconscious Mind is something I love by Dr. Joseph Murphy. I like The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. Mm. And yeah, these are the few books that I've always gone back to and read when I needed to. But currently nothing. Actually, the you know, the secret writer has written a book. So that's the recent book I'm looking forward to read. There's I think a new book coming from her. So plenty of books. Sorry? Plenty of, plenty books, of books on your yes, list. Yeah. Of, yeah. <laughs> and how about songs that make you happy? Do you like listening to music? I do, but actually I don't listen much to English music. I like Indian-based music, and there's a composer called A.R. Rahman. So his music always inspire me. There's something about the tune of the Indian music that inspires me. Mm. So truthfully, I'm not a big music listener because now more and more I listen to podcasts and audiobooks <laughs> in my free time. So music has taken a backstage. But, yeah, if I do, it's his composition that I enjoy. What podcasts are you listening to? What, what do you like to listen to at the moment? I listen to yours a lot. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I listen to the Diet Doctor podcast. I listen to um, there's a few others I I was listening to, but again I choose my topics here and there. So anything with a low carb, anything with mm. positive mindset, happiness. So these are the kind of topics that I tend to look out for. And how about your dream collaboration or collaborations, Ash? Do you have any? I've actually not thought about it, but I would say I would like to collaborate with health professionals around the world. What I like is, or even, you know, health advocates is, again, bring back health to the basics, like eating right, looking at the whole paradigm, you know, your physical health, your mental, emotional, spiritual, like quality of food, looking at the environment you live in, looking at organic food and, you know, pesticide-free life. So I. I want to just work with people and make 
families healthier. I think that's where my dream collaboration would be. And go back to just basic, clean, healthy living sort of a lifestyle. Have you heard of the Lotox podcast? I think I've heard of it. I've not started listening to it. Yeah, I think so you'd I'll... really, really like that podcast. Alex Stewart is um, the the presenter. It's her okay. podcast and uh, her whole thing is Lotox Life, Lotox Living, uh, really good talks on there. I, I think you'd really enjoy that. Fantastic. That's definitely on my list now. And Ash, my last question about top tips for being a kick-ass GP. You're in Perth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tell us about being a kick-ass GP. No, I think always listen to the patient. Like just listen. The diagnosis in the is there. They're trying to tell you everything. So I always spend time listening to them. And I feel that you always should keep the patient as the driver of their health journey. Like understand that, you know, some of them think, oh, it's, I'm just leaving it to my doctor. No, I always bring my patient and empower them. And that's when I like all these self-monitoring devices because I feel when you empower them and they have the data, they work on improving their health. So that's a good thing. And I think it's also working with other health professionals. Like we alone can't do the best for the patient. So I, I tend to just be inclusive and I love working with my specialist colleagues, my allied health colleagues, all the other health professionals out there for the betterment of the patient. So the patient is always the forefront. And I think there's no ego or anything around it. And my whole thing is about how can I make this person live their best life or be in the best health? So that's always in my mind. And what else will I say? What are the key tips? I think always understand that um, it's also, I feel there's another thing important is get to the root cause. Don't be a band-aid doctor. Like, you know, don't be a symptom doctor. Mm. So I tend to always get to the root cause. Like you say, when someone comes with insulin resistance, it's not just fixing it with the metformin. It's about fixing their sleep, looking at their diet, looking at the emotional stress they may be going through. So I think it's important. It's good to have that curious mindset to really explore and look at the root cause and understand, okay, why would this person be having this? What is happening, you know, behind this consult? So I think, you know, just being curious, putting the patient at the forefront, listening to them, working with all your other medical colleagues, um, education, educating patients, give them books, give them resources, get them to monitor their health, be it with a BP machine or a glucose monitoring or anything, you know, even a waste measurement. So give them tools to monitor and empower their health. So I think these are a few tips I would say is what I like doing as a doctor. And, you know, and I like, I like the personalized care for every patient. And sometimes I tell them this may not work for someone else, but this is what will work for you. So I think seeing everyone as an individual, understanding the stress, Understanding that there's so much happening outside of the consult that is um, contributing to this patient's well-being is an important way to yeah, look at a patient and have a good doctor-patient relationship. As a GP, though, aren't, aren't you pushed for time? I always get the impression that GPs have to, you know, see a patient in 20 minutes or half an hour. Can you tell us how that, how that works in the, in the GP okay, system? I actually think that's a choice. I, I have come from that quick consult, quick, you know, appointment mindset. And I had a burnout and I just felt that didn't work for me. So now I have stepped back. I've opened a practice where it allows holistic time. So patients can choose to book their time. Either, you know, some of them just need 20 minutes, some need an hour. So I feel you need to be able to give the patient that attention and the time. And some patients don't want it. They want a quick in and out appointment. And I tell them, you know what? I'm not the right doctor for you. So I think it's about, as a doctor, looking at how you want to run your practice, how you want to give your time for the patient and attracting the right patient and the right sort of mindset, you know, that, that helps. So I do agree there's a lot of practices that have encouraged quick medicine. It works for some doctors. It works for some patients, but it doesn't work for all. So I have chosen to step back, spend more time, look into a holistic health and that's given me the best satisfaction. And I can tell you, I only started practicing it like this year and 
I have never been happier in my practice. <laughs> <laughs> I can um, totally understand that because when I was in the public health system working and training as a doctor, I always felt very rushed um, to see yeah. patients. And, you know, you always had a pager that was going off or a telephone that was going off. And then when I, um, you know, stepped into private practice, suddenly I had control over how long I could see patients for, whether I got interrupted or not. And I have to say my satisfaction working as a doctor has gone up exponentially. Like I, I love working as a doctor. Um, I think if I had to see someone for 20 minutes and then had to churn them out, get the next patient in 20 minutes, churn them out, I would be very unhappy and I'd feel like I wasn't doing the best by the patient as well as myself. So, and I think your point about finding the right doctor, because as you said, yeah, there are some people who don't really want to talk about their sleep. They just want to go to the yeah. doctor to get something, a tablet or a, a medication, and the doctor may not be interested in talking about sleep. I don't know why they wouldn't be, but some doctors I don't think really are interested in that so much. So uh, I think that you made a really, really good point there. Yeah, I mean, that's what I totally think. Because after being in practice for a while, of course, when we all start, you know, we're doing the quick, we don't really understand. But after a while, I think we all tend to come and like, okay, look at it. What do I want to do long term? Like, it's a long career. So we need to really be happy doing what we are doing. And, you know, so I think it's, yeah, it's just, it's, but I, th I hope every doctor finds what they love and what works for them. Because I think it's so important in our profession. We work so hard. We spend so much of time at work. And you, you hear so many things about doctors, you know, about mental health breakdowns and stuff. So I think it's so important to find what works for us, to be motivated by patients, to be motivated by the work we do, by colleagues, by people around us. And that's the only way to keep going, Tash, and, you know, <laughs> continuously doing this for the next few years. Yes, totally. I'm with you on that one. Thank you so much, Ash. Thank you for those um, wise words. Thank you, Tash. I really, really enjoyed talking to you. And I hope our education given today will benefit our listeners and they all can lead a happy and healthier life. Definitely. I've learned a lot from you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode with Dr. Ashwini Ghana Baskaran. Maybe it's made you curious about glucose monitoring at home. It certainly made me very curious and I might even do a podcast one day to share with you my experiences. Share this episode with someone if you think it will help them. Please subscribe to the Fanny Mechanic channel and if you haven't already, hop over and give the show a fantastic rating. Shoot me a message on Instagram, Dr. Tash Fanny Mechanic and join the Fanny Mechanic podcast group on Facebook. Let me know of any topics you'd like to hear, cool people like an interview or books for us to read and share. Until next time, stay fanny-tabulous.